Chapter thirty seven of Prophets, Priests, and Kings by Alfred George Gardiner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty seven Lewis Harcourt. What I really think, said Mr. Harcourt. What you really think, interrupted the other, laughing, is known only to Mr. Lewis Harcourt and his maker. Mr. Harcourt smiled his inscrutable smile and proceeded the thrust glanced off the impenetrable corslet but it expressed what one feels about this dominating masterful figure that sits so tight in the saddle wears ever an unruffled front turns aside the smashing blow with a jest seems never hurried never worried pursues his purpose with such stillness that he is forgotten until the mine explodes and the match that fired it is seen in his hand the lightnings play about the path of mr winston churchill mr harcourt advances in the shadow unobtrusively unnoted except by the few watch him casually and he seems but a spectator of the game amused and interested but never caught in its central swirl a man after mr george russell's own heart carrying with him the atmosphere of the eighteenth century full of worldly ironic wisdom rich in stories of men and events too fond of pulling the mechanism of the watch to pieces ever to become a wheel in its works that is the superficial view of mr harcourt behind this easy imperturbable exterior you find one of the most subtle most far-seeing most unswerving influences in politics it was the intrigues of young harcourt that upset my apple-cart lord rosebery is reported to have once said the saying if authentic was not quite true the man who upset lord rosebery's apple-cart was lord rosebery but those who know most of the intricate story of those troubled years when sir henry campbell bannerman was holding aloft the old flag surrounded by open enemies and cold friends know how much of the ultimate triumph was due to the astuteness and passionless loyalty of mr harcourt i would rather have him at my back in a row than any man in politics mr harcourt bides his time he has the rare gift of immeasurable patience jacob toiled for laban fourteen years but mr harcourt toiled for his father twenty he gave up not only his youth but his maturity to that filial service he took on himself the humblest secretarial tasks he learned shorthand and typewriting to facilitate his father's work he sought no place for himself he drudged seventeen hours a day over his father's budgets he grubbed among blue books and dusty documents he was over forty before he sought a seat in parliament even when he entered the house he was content to remain silent to wait he was to the world just lulu sir william's son an amiable young man devoted to his father the shadow of a great name when he was given a place in the ministry he had not uttered a word in parliament and there was a certain justice in the allusion to him as an interesting experiment the phrase tickled him i have a letter from him signed the interesting experiment he delivered his first parliamentary speech as a minister of the crown and he came into his kingdom at a stride 
his long apprenticeship was over and a new force of first-rate possibilities was added to the drama of politics he emerged in a day from the obscurity of twenty years into the front rank of the conflict equipped with every parliamentary resource knowing all the inner workings of the machine familiar from his childhood with the great figures of the past gladstone disraeli salisbury astute serene unfathomable with the suavity of conscious power and most dangerous when he was most suave the glove was velvet but the hand within was iron Today, Mr. Harcourt stands out as one of the three men in the Liberal Party to whom all things seem possible. Political life never furnished a more startling contrast in temperament and outlook than two of those three furnish, the one eager, restless, inquiring, passionate, modern as the morning's news sheet, drinking life in great feverish draughts, as if he feared that every moment would snatch the goblet from his lips forever, a mountain torrent in spate, the other, calm and secure, cool and calculating, living as if he had all eternity to work in, as if he had the key to every problem, and had tasted all that was in the cup of life the orbit of the one incalculable the orbit of the other known to the fraction of a second for mr harcourt has his roots in the past he treads in the established tradition of british statesmanship to him the world is still divisible into whigs and tories the old party lines still plainly mark the path before him he will never lead a social revolution he will never blaze out into any raging tearing propaganda he will never desert the tabernacle, and if ever the old guard comes into action on the evening of some Waterloo, it will be Mr. Harcourt who will lead the van. In a word, he is for the party first and last, for liberalism as he understands it, and as his father understood it, for liberalism is the instrument of sober considered progress upon familiar lines, yielding here a little and there a little to the fierce clamor of the new time with its new strange voices but keeping ever to the great trunk road of which walpole was the engineer in the eighteenth century and gladstone in the nineteenth how far a mind so rooted in the past so remote from popular sympathies and the spirit of the modern democratic movement so governed by a conception of society organically unchanging can control the lightnings that flash in the political sky of the twentieth century and bring them into the service of the cause to which he is devoted is one of the most interesting problems of the future it is the problem of liberalism itself the problem of how far the principles of liberalism which have worked out the civil and religious freedom of the people can be successfully applied to securing their economic freedom and their liberation from the serfdom of circumstance and the wrongs of social injustice few men have appealed less to the gallery than mr harcourt he does not scan far horizons he does not declare any vision of a promised land he has no passionate fervor for humanity and is too honest to pretend to any he is a practical politician with no dithyrams he loves the intricacies of the campaign more than the visionary gleam the actual more than the potential present facts more than future fancies he is the man without a dream 
but he is the type of man who brings the dreams of others to pass the builder who translates the imagination of the architect into terms of wood and stone other men will prophesy he will perform other men will create the atmosphere of change he will give it form and shape he is the man who puts things through there has been no more striking feat of supple capacity combined with unyielding purpose than his conduct of the small holdings act last session his smile is more potent than the speeches of other men he has you unhorsed with a phrase and when you think to catch him napping you find that he has all his battalions within earshot ready to descend on you like an avalanche he is the organizer of victory the general who will not lose a gun if his possibilities are not realized it will be because in his secret heart he distrusts the eager movement of the time and conceives his function to be that of a check upon its enthusiasms rather than an inspiration and because he has too much of the spirit of the grand seigneur to be entirely at home in the heat and dust of these democratic days to the general he will always be a little caviar the general is not responsive to persiflage and elaborate irony mr harcourt has the manners and the mental habitudes of the ancien regime he would not pass for a parvenu you would not associate his origins with dry goods his philosophy is that of walpole and it is of that statesman more than any other that he reminds you there is about him nothing of the hurry of the twentieth century and no suspicion of its feverish intellectual unrest the riddles of the universe do not disturb him he is the man of leisure and of taste who is very pleased with the world and entirely at home in it and who has the security and ease that come from generations of spacious life if he drops into poetry you expect it to be horation and when he tells a story it has the flavor of the great world he suggests ancestors knights in armor bishops in lawn sleeves stalwart eighteenth-century squires striding over ploughed lands with a gun and drinking their three bottles at night in georgian mansions masterful men all lords of many acres politely familiar with the classics their walls hung with lely's leering ladies and kneller's unimaginative wigs he is at once curiously like and unlike his father he has sir william's great height he stands six foot two or so but he is as lean as cassius while his father's girth was falstaffian sir william was a famous trencherman with the constitution of a norse hero his son is delicate and fastidious and when he comes into the room he looks for the draughts he has much of his father's wit but none of his father's irascibility he smiles urbanely and darkly where his father thundered he has the olympian manner of sir william but it is more restrained and men never joke about his plantagenet descent though to his father's royal pedigree he adds another kinship with royalty through his mother a clarendon the toast of sir william harcourt and the rest of the royal family is never adapted to his case 
but he is not indifferent to the other branch of the family and is a close friend of the king whom he entertains at nunham in regal state for he has great wealth through his wife the daughter of the late mr w h burns of new york the heavy untuned voice like the late duke of devonshire's the voice of an authentic aristocracy broken i suppose in the view halloo of generations of fox-hunting forebears is not adapted to rhetoric but his speeches are of the same vintage as sir william's and when he rises the house knows that it is going to have some innocent merriment sometimes his merriment is out of touch with the modern sentiment as in the case of his speeches on the woman suffrage question which would have done very well no doubt in his own eighteenth century but ring a little unpleasantly in ours there is a certain incongruity between a man of such powers and his office it is like hackenschmidt wheeling a perambulator but he wheels it astonishingly well and seems to enjoy the task he has raised the office of first commissioner of works to a level that it had never reached before he has shown in it the same managing spirit that he revealed at the home county's liberal federation for the triumph around london in nineteen o six was largely his and which is restoring the ancient glories of the nunham seat which came to him in some embarrassment and decay he has saved the time of the house by simplifying the divisions he has reorganized the catering as adroitly as though he had spent his youth at spears and pawns instead of eton he has rearranged the dining-rooms and won the heart of everybody by his thoughtful stewardship he has inaugurated a great scheme for the development of the public galleries and has worked wonders in the royal parks raising wages cheapening refreshments giving facilities for games i know of no pleasanter fact about him than his consideration for the children he has some charming children of his own and perhaps that is why he remembers other people's little girls and boys who have no nunam park to play in his happy idea of making some of the animals in the zoo visible from the outside where the children play in regent's park is an illustration of this engaging side of his character and administration when he resigns the perambulator a parliament will discover behind this exterior of polite persiflage one of the ablest executive brains in politics a capacious mind moving without haste and without deviation to deeply considered ends subtle adroit resourceful omnia capax imperii but most capable of all in ruling men whom he knows through and through while he himself remains always something of a mystery for he has none of the self-revelation of mr churchill who throws all his cards on the table with the careless frankness of fox and turns out his mind with the joy of a boy turning out his pockets mr harcourt has his battalions masked what i really think he says what you really think you reply End of chapter thirty seven